0: When we take a step back and look bigger picture, there is a crackdown on real estate sector. There is a crackdown on tech. But in the spirit of the reforms that everyone's asking for and in the longer term, this probably creates a much better environment for us to invest in because in a few years time if you have this deleveraging that happens with the real estate sector then issuers who are survivors of that sector should have stronger balance sheets and be in a stronger position because they will have lower leverage and then it's same thing for the tech sector as well you know to the extent that there's increased competition then that also means that you know there's fairer pricing coming through as well so ultimately we we think that these sort of measures, although it causes volatility in short term and it causes a bit of pain uh, on a mark to market basis, we think, you know, for the sake of the longer term and for for the sake of the reforms, um, it's probably a good thing to happen.
1: That was Omatunde Lawal, head of emerging market corporate debt at Bearings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. i'm your host greg campion and i'd like to welcome you to this special episode of streaming income we are in between seasons right now and planning to launch season number five in late august but given all the news flow around china at the moment and its significance for emerging markets in particular We decided to record this episode and get it out to you right away. Before we get to it, remember, if you'd like to be the first to know when our new season drops, make sure you follow us by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. My guest today is Omatunde Lawal, EM Debt Portfolio Manager and Head of Emerging Markets Corporate Debt at Bearings. In the conversation, Tunde and I spoke about the recent crackdowns in China that are dominating the headlines currently across all sorts of sectors, from education to property to big tech. Uh, Specifically, we talked about the industries that are affected and the government's rationale for these sweeping changes that are being implemented. We also discussed the broader impact on fixed income markets and whether this is just an additional risk to be factored in or if it's actually creating opportunities as well. And finally, we talked about where we go from here and what Tunde and the team will be watching in the weeks and months ahead. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Omatunde Lawal. All right, Omatunde Lawal, welcome back to Streaming Income.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I'm excited to have you here. Uh, we had you here at the beginning of the year back in uh, January, where we had uh, kind of an emerging markets uh, outlook episode. Um, but today we're here to talk about a specific situation, and that's uh, what's going on with China. Uh, and more specifically, we want to discuss you know, what's been happening in recent weeks and months with regards to some of the government crackdowns uh, that we've seen across a variety of industries and companies, in the tech sector, the property sector education, uh, and of course, in other areas. And ultimately, what, what we would like to discuss here is you know, how all of this may impact the outlook for fixed income investors, especially those in your area of expertise, uh, EM corporate debt. So maybe let's start just with some high-level context. Uh, so for our listeners who may not be aware of the full extent of the recent government actions in China can you maybe start just by taking us through some of the high points there?
0: Absolutely. I mean, um, investing in China has certainly been eventful uh, year to date. I mean, we've had quite a few of the different sectors have been um, in the news for various reasons. I mean, let's let's take a step back and sort of set the scene for our listeners here. So we started off seeing um, a bit of a policy tightening stance on the real estate market in the last six to sort of 12 months, um, especially as China has recovered from the sort of pandemic towards the middle of last year and the physical market had recovered, that you could see that the Chinese government stance sort of shifted um, to a, a slightly tighter bias where they were trying to make sure that the increase in house prices that have come through in the recovery phase didn't sort of rapidly get out of hand. So what we've seen is the government uh, being more explicit in tightening credit into the sector. Mm -hmm. And so you've seen that coming through in terms of directives to the banks on how much they can lend to the real estate sector. And in terms of mortgage financing rules, you've also seen rules around land sales, as well as tightening of permits for who can and cannot purchase homes. So you've had that sort of focus on the real estate market and trying to make sure that they stick with the top-down directive that homes are for living and trying to make sure that the house prices don't um, get too out of hand.
1: Right. Dampening and- down the speculation a little bit. I think that homes are for living is 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 uh, actually quite the catchy slogan. It definitely <laughs> sticks in your mind, right?
0: Exactly, right? <laughs> it does have a ring to it. Um, and then you have the other sector. So, you know, we had the, the big news about uh where the sort of IPO was pulled at the 99th hour mm, and then you mm. got a fine on the Alibaba um Alibaba's company when the IPO got pulled and then you've had fines also imposed on Tencent and then the common theme there with the crackdown on what we call big tech so the big tech uh titans has been trying to sort of break up the monopoly that you have there mm-hmm. there you have both Alibaba and Tencent huge titans um but competing ecosystems which don't overlap. So you're either in the Alibaba ecosystem or in the Tencent ecosystem. And this hasn't really fostered enough competition or enough new tech startups to come through. And so really what the government has been doing there is trying to break up that monopoly and make sure that um, both Alibaba and Tencent actually not only open up their ecosystems to others to share in that sort of infrastructure, but also to then foster through the increased competition, better pricing of products and services that are available for sale through those mediums. I mean, for example, with the 10 cent um, WeChat app, uh, which is uh, sort of a big uh, communications app on there, you can buy home insurance, life insurance, you can buy various products and services, buy train tickets, buy plane tickets. I mean, you could do pretty much everything on that. Um, But only certain service providers or vendors are able to sell within that WeChat ecosystem. And so, you know, a consumer or a goes on to that and and you know they only get that subset of vendors that are available there. But if you had the whole system open up, then you get better pricing. So you know there's that sort of breaking up that monopoly of big tech.
1: Yeah. Kind of these walled gardens, so to speak. It's not dissimilar from, you know, what's going on actually with a lot of the big U.S. Uh, companies. It's just, I guess, the uh, we've got two different forms of government here and, and one may be uh, more able to address these things more quickly and decisively, whether or not that ultimately ends up being, uh, you know, the best route remains to be seen. But there's I definitely see parallels between, you know, big tech and the U.S. and China.
0: Absolutely. You could could draw the same parallels between the Amazons, the Googles and the Facebooks versus the sort of Alibaba and the Tencent, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the next uh, sort of sector that's been in the news, and again, you can kind of see what the Chinese government's trying to do there has been what we call big data. And this is really around consumer data. And, and this really sort of came to the fore with um, the Chinese government crackdown on Diddy. And Diddy, for those who don't know, is the sort of the largest uh, ride hailing app in China, which is the equivalent of an Uber mm-hmm. um, on this side. Uh, and really, they, they cracked down just after Didi uh, had a listing in the US. And the worry there for the Chinese government, is that um, consumer data or sensitive consumer data, biometric data, things like that, they felt that with some of these listings in the US, some of the data that's captured from these apps could end up being stored on servers outside of China. And I think the Chinese government's uh, concern here is keeping... Sensitive consumer data within Chinese borders. So, you've seen that sort of crackdown on Didi, as well as a few other apps and Meituan. Meituan is a food delivery or a delivery app, uh, which would be the equivalent of like a Deliveroo on this side. Um, so, you've seen that the third sector that, that, that's been affected. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on, on that side, in addition to that sort of crackdown on sort of big data, as it were, we've then seen Uh, add-on policy from the Chinese government around that, where they then pushed for better social benefits for gig workers or the contractors who would work on these apps, uh, you know, pushing for minimum wage and health insurance and and things like that. So so better social benefits for these guys. And then the final piece which sort of has been in the news in in the last week or so has been the education sector. Mm -hmm. Now education sector is a $100 billion industry and this is the latest pillar that the chinese government is tackling and, and their issue there is they're trying to stamp out private capital funding the education sector and the official line there is that you know you know that they're, they're trying to improve this landscape for everyone and, and reduce that income disparity where uh, there's the difference between the haves and the have-nots and the sort of wealthier part of the population can afford to get private tutoring uh, for their kids, which then means that they have a better chance of getting into the more selective schools. And that just sort of increases the gap between the haves and the have-nots. So you sort of have these sort of four areas where the Chinese government has cracked down. You might think to yourself, I think initially we thought, oh, idiosyncratic um, policy measures on real estate and then mm. on tech and then on big data and then education. But when you take a step back, actually, a the common theme that runs through it, uh, seems to be as follows. It's, you know, wh- when we go back to what our sort of base stance is in terms of investing in China, we know that the Chinese government very much values social stability. And, you know, a lot of the policies that we see coming out of there tends to be rooted in sort of maintaining a socioeconomic stability within the country and making sure that they're stamping out anything that's a threat to economic and social development. So with that sort of framework in mind, we sort of looked through and said, what is the common theme here? And the common theme here seems to be exactly that same thing. It's, It's working on improving the social stability and income disparity. Look at property markets, for example. The property market, the reason they're stamping that down is to make sure that the house prices don't, Escalate too too rapidly that it becomes um, unaffordable for a big part of the population, and so that you know first time buyers, the younger part of the population, can afford the homes. In addition, you look at the property market as well. With what China has had as the one child policy, we've seen that recent shift from the one child policy uh, to encouraging at least two children to encouraging three. Now, one of the big barriers to increased birth rate is going to be the accommodation, right? And so to the extent that you can make the real estate and the property uh, more affordable, that makes it easier for families to make that decision to increase the sizes of the families, right? Same argument on the education side as well. The high cost of education has been a barrier also for the birth rates. You know, it was already quite expensive and very competitive uh, to pay for the private tutoring. To the extent that you stamp out the sort of private capital in there, that's sort of pushing... Um, the prices up for for that uh, the tutoring and the education side of things. Again, it improves the incentive for families to increase the sizes so that they don't feel like it's going to cost them an arm and a leg to educate two children instead of just focusing on the one child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So So there's that sort of part in terms of trying to sort of level the playing field and making sure there's affordability and making sure that, you know, there's social stability in there. And then on the sort of big data and big tech side, you know, same same theme running through there where, you know, they're focusing on consumer data, but the next layer there has been making sure that, you know, the gig workers and the contractors who are working there can get a minimum wage, you know, fair wage, getting some social benefits again. So trying to sort of redress that to make sure that um, certain parts of the workforce aren't left behind. And, and then with the big tech and the big data side, um, it's about, uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, it's about. Improving the pricing of products and services, trying to bring those prices down, so that you know, if the monopoly is broken up and you have increased competition, it's a more efficient market in terms of pricing a lot of these products. And perhaps you could look at the sort of flip side of it—that you know, it's not an entirely altruistic. Um,
1: yeah, that was going to be my question. Is that <laughs> I, I, everything you've described so far? Well, I'm struck by a couple things. One, uh, these are. Eastern problems and Western problems, right? There are certainly nuances, uh, but you know, as anyone with kids uh, in the Western world knows, the price of education uh, can be quite intimidating, uh, and and can drive you know things like you know decisions around how many kids to have and stuff like that. And the you know, of course, property market, same situation. We've all seen what uh, you know vacation homes and things like that have done, you know, throughout this COVID period. Uh, But obviously two different systems for, you know, how do you actually handle that, right? How do you regulate big tech? How do you bring education costs down? How do you try to take some of the speculation out of property markets? So very similar problems. And, you know, maybe China's better set up to deal with them uh, directly. Now, people may not like the way that they choose to deal with them, but but their uh, system of governments, you know, is set up that way. Um, and obviously, democracy is a little bit messier, right? And, and, and uh, it's a little more, on the one hand, out in the open in terms of how these decisions are made and the motives behind them. Uh, but uh, the checks and balances uh, naturally lead you to a place where you know action can be you know more difficult to come by. But I think where you were going and what I want to ask you about is, you know, everything that you've mentioned, the motives seem pretty altruistic, to use your word. Um, if we're talking about you know encouraging social stability and promoting equality and trying to raise minimum wages and promoting competition. I mean, that all seems like good stuff. And especially and that's
0: all in the longer term reform that, you know, that we're all hoping to see with China. Right. mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And especially, I guess, as we view everything from, you know, through an ESG lens, of course, that's all, you know, at face value, pretty positive stuff, I would think. So, but I guess the question for you is, you know, naturally, I think markets and investors are going to want to look at this with some some amount of skepticism and say, well, okay, is that really what's going on? Or <laughs> is there fear that big tech is becoming too powerful? Or maybe-
0: there are always two sides to it, right? So absolutely. I think that the other side, and if you were to put your sort of cynical hat on, would be, yes, perhaps a um, It it is in the government's interest to make sure that the the tech titans, who are celebrities and cults leaders in a way, uh, they need to be controlled. You think about Jack Ma. He had this aura of invisibility about him for so long and now seems to be a bit more human. So, you know, maybe big tech does need to be controlled and maybe in the manner that they do control big tech does buy Loyalty to the government um, subsequently. So so there is that side. And and then you could also argue from the educational side as well, actually, that by stamping out um, foreign capital coming into that sector, you're also trying to sort of make sure that foreign ideologies from foreign tutors and foreign curriculum doesn't make its way into the Chinese agenda. And then that doesn't dilute the message that the Chinese government is trying to sort of permeate through the education system as well. so you you could argue that you know, there are not so altruistic motives behind it um, as well. absolutely.
1: Um, ok. so let's talk about you know, how this impacts markets. And, you know, we've seen some pretty dramatic share price moves in public equity markets. the last couple of weeks. you mentioned Diddy, which I think, uh, came, I think probably dropped roughly 50% from its recent IPO price um, on some of this uh, regulatory news flow. Um, but maybe what's less obvious is what's been happening in fixed income markets. So I'm kind of hoping that you can give us a sense of what's going on there in terms of credit spreads, prices, etc. And then maybe before you do that, if you could provide just some broader context. So if you think about your investable universe of Chinese companies in the corporate debt market, you know what does that look like? How big is that? And then I'm curious, like you know, what that sector composition looks like, and especially how that sort of matches up against some of the sectors that we've been talking about here.
0: Absolutely. So uh, setting setting the scene that in terms of our sort of fixed income world, um, China is the largest sort of single bucket of supply in the EM corporate space. I mean, the the EM corporate asset class is uh, roughly $2.6 trillion size at the moment. So it's been one of the fastest growing asset classes, but a big part of that uh, rapid growth that we've seen in the last decade or so has come from China. Um, China now accounts for about 32% of our universe of 2.6 trillion. And the composition of where uh, most of that supply comes from is mainly through issuers in the banking or financial sector, as it were. So we've got issuers from China, uh, the, the four main policy banks. We've got the leasing companies, and then we've got the asset management companies. You guys would have all heard of Huarong recently that sits in the asset management sector. And then the next largest sector would be the real estate, uh, the China property space uh, there are probably approximately 60 to 65 issuers uh, in the dollar capital markets from the China property space. So that's a big subsector in itself. And then the next largest sector of issuers that we have from China would be the tech sector. So all the guys that we've discussed just earlier, Alibaba, Tencent, Meituan, Weibo, Lenovo, uh, Xiaomi, all these sort of tech names that have sort of emerged, uh, That that's sort of a big sector. And then you have, you know, a a small amount of supply coming from the oil and gas space where the SOEs, you know, your Sinopex and the CNUX, uh, and then some of the state-owned utility companies like the China Grid and things like that. But, but the bulk of the supply really comes from the financial sector, real estate, and tech. Um, and so w- with that setting of the scene, you know, in terms of how the fixed income market has reacted, as you mentioned, the equity market has been largely sort of decimated Um, in in the last few weeks with all the regulatory headlines and on the fixed income side, we've definitely seen spreads also widen out as well. And on a year to date basis, the, spreads of the China issuers in our universe uh, on average wider by about 100 basis points. And that's just the average sort of combining investment grade as well as high yield. Of the 100 basis points widening year to date, 45 basis points happened in the last month. So the most violent move has happened in the last month as we've seen the sort of uh, DD news hit the headlines and the education system news hit the headlines and then some Some more tension coming through on the real estate side. So that's where it's really sort of bubbled up some more um, in the last month or so.
1: And so are there um, sectors that you see as particularly vulnerable or less vulnerable at this point?
0: I'd say that the most vulnerable really are the ones that have sort of hit the headlines at the moment. Because if you think about the common theme that's running through them, it's been sectors where there's been a social consequence um, for that sector. So for the tech names, it's been about improving competition and making sure that the prices of goods and services on these um, ecosystems are fairer and also controlling the power of the tech titan. So th- there, there is a social element there and, and that's why you've seen that sort of impact there. And we've seen credit spreads For the tech sector specifically, in the last month, has widened by about 15 basis points. But interestingly, on a year to date basis, those credit spreads are still tighter by about 10 to 12 basis points. So you could tell that in the tech sector as well, a lot of them are investment grade rated companies that are at very solid balance sheets. A lot of them are sitting in a net cash position or very low um, amount of debt on their balance sheets. So that serves them and that provides a bit of a cushion. Even despite the sort of crackdown from the government and some of the fines, the fines have been largely immaterial in size relative to the scale of the business of these tech giants. The two sectors that have been more impacted have been the financial space, uh, where credit spreads are about 61 basis points wider on a year-to-date basis and about 20 basis points wider in the last month. And then the real estate sector has been the other one where uh, that's been very much buffeted by not just the policy tightening, but also the liquidity tension that's then bubbled with Evergrande, which has, which is the largest privately owned real estate company. So with the headline noise around Evergrande and whether or not Evergrande is headed for a default, that has caused contagion and a repricing, significant repricing in that sector. So that sector has widened by 350 basis points a year to date. I mean, it's it's huge, (laughs) the amount of widening. In terms of your question about what other sectors could be vulnerable, I mean, when I look out there, there, there isn't that much supply necessarily from other sectors that have more of a social function. The only other one that I can think of that potentially could be in the crosshairs could be the healthcare sector because there you then have something that's directly impactful for the general population. And in our dollar markets, we don't really have very many um, private healthcare companies that would come to the dollar market. Um, So that probably doesn't cause as much sort of market headlines or volatility for our markets necessarily, even if there were to be more of a policy crackdown on that sector necessarily.
1: Okay. I mean, it's interesting to hear that the 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 credit spread widening has has not been, you know, very uniform uh with, you know, as you mentioned, real estate uh you know much more impacted for instance than big tech, but I guess that's a function of a variety of factors and and you know with regards to the the tech, you know, credit spreads not really blowing out that much that kind of intuitively makes sense when you talk about having very healthy uh, balance sheets. And- exactly.
0: Exactly. Right. Because the real estate tends to be more high yield and they tend to have a bit more leverage and more dependent on constant liquidity. And so there is that sort of structural difference in the sectors.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess, and maybe this is too general of a question, but as you look out at you know what prices have done, what credit spreads have done year to date in the last month, Are you and the team kind of viewing this volatility as an opportunity, or is is it too early to to really say?
0: When you look back um, over the last sort of decade even more, the bouts of corrections that have happened in the China property space has, in hindsight, proven to be buying opportunities. Uh, Absolutely, you look back to sort of early 2020 with the COVID outbreak when the market sold off buying opportunity took about two to three months and the sector was right back to the spread levels it was prior to the sell-off. I look back to even sort of 2014, 2015, where we had uh, a default in China uh, in the real estate space, even that uh, proved to be a buying opportunity. Another two to three months and spreads were back to that level. So potentially there is a buying opportunity here. I think the difference here is when to step in and whether or not you know, the correction is sort of largely priced in. But having said that, I think what what sort of stops the route really is going to be dependent on uh, a few different things here and and when sort of the market draws the line you know we've seen this time and time again where you know the government goes on these sort of crackdowns you know if you think back to 2014 and 2015 when we had a big crackdown on shadow banking and anti-corruption and we saw spreads widen out back then and then as it started to cause a bit of a drag on the real economy and started to cause a drag on the equity markets you saw them step back away from that and then we saw the markets recover i sort of view it uh, as a similar playbook to, to, for, for this sort of um, episode that we're having at the moment. I can see that, you know, they've cracked down on lots of different sectors, but I think the longer that goes on for, and the longer it starts to permeate and cause a bit of a drag on the real economy, then we might sort of see them sort of rein it in a bit because ultimately, as the Chinese government is trying to manage uh, the sort of socioeconomic policies and make sure that they're stamping out threats to economic and social development, they're also very mindful of the systemic risks as as well and social stability ultimately. So, you know, they're not gonna do anything that really upends the cart um, overall. is our view so yes there is a buying opportunity it's whether or not you step in fully now or you do some now and you leave room to add more later but certainly the kind of things that we would have in mind on our side are the catalysts so it'd be the next set sort of interim results coming out for the real estate sector uh, a lot of the issuers will start to report their numbers in august and particularly in the second half of august that's when it really sort of comes through and then any further policy direction as well you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the Chinese government typically will sort of crack down. But the minute it starts to get out of hand, they, they, they typically rein it in. So it's a really watching for that policy direction to see if anything changes um, there on that side. But ultimately, you know, when we take a step back and look bigger picture, there is a crackdown on real estate sector. There is a crackdown on tech. But in, in in the spirit of the reforms that everyone's asking for, and in the longer term, this probably creates a much better um, environment for us to invest in. Because in a few years time, if you have this deleveraging that happens with the real estate sector, then the issuers who are survivors of that sector should have stronger balance sheets and be in a stronger position because they will have lower leverage. And, and then it's same thing for the tech sector as well, you know, to the extent that there's increased competition, and increased monopoly, then that also means that, you know, there's better pricing and fairer pricing coming through as well. So ultimately, we we think that these sort of measures, although it causes volatility in the short term and it causes a, a bit of pain uh, on a mark-to-market basis, we think, you know, for the sake of the longer term and for, for the sake of the reforms, um, it's probably a good thing to to happen.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um... And yeah, I mean, I would imagine, I, I won't try to sit here in the U S and try to guess all the the motivations of the Chinese government and regulators, but I would imagine, you know, their, their goal is not to necessarily stifle innovation, especially in the tech and the, you know, the big data spaces, but more to, to establish a, a framework that's, you know, more successful long-term. And I guess to your point uh, as a debt investor Um, long-term, you know, that may actually be much more solid footing um, to be on. Now, um, you know, before we finish up, I do actually want to raise one more point from a skeptic's point of view, though. Um, If there's question marks around some of the financial data itself, if there's question marks around the government, uh, you know, continuously changing the rules by which these companies have to operate by, is that a, a... really difficult environment for you to actually value uh you know whether it's debt or equity is that a difficult environment to do that or are you just so used to doing it from from investing in emerging markets generally speaking <laughs>
0: yeah I I guess if you're an investor in emerging markets yeah you always have to be nimble and you, you just don't take anything for granted in terms of the macro backdrop that you're invested in and this is why it's particularly key to make sure that you're focusing on the business model of the specific issuer that you're investing in and you test the robustness of that business model against various scenarios so that you know that if the macro backdrop were to change in any direction, how resilient that business model is. So that's absolutely key to make sure you understand truly what it is you're buying. And especially when you're in EM, what we tend to do is make sure that we're looking at multiple data points. So in addition to the sort of numbers that are reported at a top line basis, you know, we're we're doing bottom-up channel checks ourselves. So, you know, we're checking when we're speaking to the utility companies, we're finding out about electricity demand, Uh, when we speak to the real estate companies, we're physically on the ground, we're visiting construction sites, we're visiting show homes, we're taking a pulse for actually are the numbers being reported matching up to what we notice ourselves on the ground as well. So it's making sure that you're doing the due diligence that goes with doing your fundamental bottom-up analysis to cross-check that against the macro data that's coming through. So I I don't think that it's impossible to invest. Uh, I think you just have to be diligent in doing the work and in terms of you know regime that changes the rules of the game i i don't think that that's necessarily applicable here in that they necessarily always changing the rules of the game. I think there is a bigger picture here, which we did highlight earlier on, is that you know underlying it all is always the desire for social stability. And with that, we always have that at the back of our mind. And if you have that at the back of your mind, you can definitely always see a thread that's running through the policy decisions that comes through. But the, the final thing that I'd say on that, though, is that from a fixed income perspective, unlike um, equity, is we follow the cash, you know, fixed income is really about a cash flow. Uh, it, it's a cash flow asset class, so we follow the cash, and that's easier to track. You know, you, you follow the companies, all the ones at least that come through the dollar market. They're listed in Hong Kong, fairly decent uh, governance oversight in Hong Kong. A lot of them will have audited numbers, audited by international auditors, prepared to international financial reporting standards. And so you follow the cash, and if the cash. Plus your bottom-up analysis that you do and the channel checks that you do. If that um, if that all aligns, then you have a bit more comfort.
1: That makes sense. All right, follow the cash. It's uh, not usually bad advice. Um, and and focus on the bottom-up credit analysis, which is uh, which is something that I know you and the team are doing every day. And it's why we have such a large, well-resourced emerging markets team to focus on this. So. Um, well, Tunde, this has been eye opening for me. It's been great to get uh, just some context around what's going on here, what what the implications could be. I know this is gonna continue to develop, and there'll probably be, you know, a hundred new headlines before we even post this episode in a couple of days, but uh, but uh, I appreciate you joining me here today and helping to shed some light um, on on what's going on here. and I look forward to continuing the conversation with you hopefully on another episode of Streaming Income very soon.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to this special episode of Streaming Income. Remember, we'll be back in late August with season number five. So if you'd like to stay up to date on the ins and outs of asset classes like high yield, private credit, EM Debt in Real Estate, make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify by searching Streaming Income. That's it for now. I hope you enjoy the rest of your summer and we will see you next time.